eavesdropping is welcome on the desert's best conversations with Charlie Dyer. There are no accidents. That's the conclusion of our guest today as he traveled around the country talking to injured workers and surviving family members in many different occupations, including store clerks, hotel housekeepers, miners, nurses, grain handlers, and others about unsafe working conditions. He ultimately concluded that all of these deaths and injuries were preventable. And he wants you to understand that the stories he collected in his new book are the tip of the proverbial iceberg in terms of the deadly hazards that workers face across the country every day. Thank you so much, Jonathan Carmel, for being here today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. Thank you, Charlie, for having me. Well, Jonathan's new book is Dying to Work, Death and Injury in the American Workplace. He he practices labor and employment law and has for 35 years representing unions and their employee benefit funds. He is a fellow with the College of Labor and Employment Lawyers and has been recognized as an Illinois super lawyer. That sounds like uh, something out of the Fantastic Four or something. It is. <laughs> John is a frequent panelist on labor and employment topics and is lectured internationally. He uh, recently became the co-chair of the American Bar Association's Occupational Safety and Health Committee, where he hopes to increase awareness of the important issues affecting workers and their families. Well, according to recent reports from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, how many workers are killed on the job per day on average? And according to the CDC, how many deaths per year can be attributed to work-related illnesses, John? Well, there are on average uh, 14 workers a day who are killed uh, on the job and more than 150 workers every day uh, die related to their work. And that includes 50,000 workers a year who die as a result of work exposures illnesses related to exposures at work. Okay. So it's a, it's a big number and these are just the reported numbers and not there's many many number, you know, many many more numbers out there that they just don't get reported. Yeah, I was going to say we always talk about the reported versus unreported numbers and and it's hard sometimes to put your your hands around such large numbers and thinking about your own local community and how it filters down, but that is just it's mind-boggling. It is, and the and the large numbers have been estimated uh, into you know the tens and tens of thousands. Miners, construction workers, oil and gas workers, and railroad workers, for instance, have always been kind of the poster children for workplace death and injury. But talk about some of the other jobs that, that they seem safe, but nonetheless they can be dangerous. So what would our lives look like were it not for the, the labor of people in these jobs with higher than average rate of on-the-job injuries and death? Everything we touch and everything we come into contact with every day has been produced by somebody who is taking a risk just going to work. The food you eat, uh, the medical care you receive, talking on a cell phone. There are, there are workers who put up the cell phone towers, extremely dangerous jobs. So there's all sorts of jobs out there that we don't think about at all or we don't think that they're dangerous jobs, but every job has a significant risk of injury or death. Talk about just some of those jobs that people would think off the top of their head. Sure. Well, you're not at risk when you go to work doing that. 
I talk about the retail grocery industry in a couple of my stories. And part of that is I used to be a grocery clerk myself many, many years ago. Um, and we all interact in the grocery stores. We go shopping every day, but we don't realize, or at least I didn't, and I, most people don't, realize how dangerous those jobs are. For example, a cashier who's checking out your groceries. They suffer all sorts of work-related injuries related to their um, job of, of swiping across the electronic eye your food every day. That causes uh, muscular skeletal injuries like carpal tunnel syndrome in your wrist, your arms, your back, your shoulders. Um, so that's one type of injury. Then there's just the back room of a store, uh, which is a very dangerous place. Uh, and one of the stories in the book I, I write about is a woman who was moving pallets of, of bottled water, and they collapsed on her and killed her. Wow. Uh, and, and working in the in the meat department of a, of a grocery store. It's an extremely dangerous job with all the uh, slicers and grinders and knives. Uh, and every day we'll, we'll send 16-year-olds to go bag groceries and work in a grocery store. I did it. They're dangerous jobs. Well, John, you feared the worst right after the 2016 election, that the, that the progress that had been made in the Obama administration to protect the health and safety of workers would be just uh, unraveled. So how bad has it been? Do you have any hope that the current Congress might make any moves to protect workers? The answer is it's bad, and it was bad immediately after President Trump returned to the White House after his inauguration. He went about signing uh, executive orders undoing numerous regulations, including a number of health and safety regulations. And since then, it's gotten even worse. The people that they've appointed to uh, run the agency, the OSHA agency, two years into his administration, there aren't, it's not fully staffed. Uh, and I don't have any hope uh, with this uh, Congress, which is split, obviously, uh, that it's going to improve in the next couple of years. I don't have any hope for new regulations or that we can put back the regulations that were enacted at the end of the Obama term. Not yet. So just give us one example of sort of the top of, oh, my God, I can't believe Tre President Trump rolled back this regulation. Well, there was an interesting regulation, um, and it had to do with uh, requiring employers to report um, workplace injury data. It seems a simple enough uh, regulation. Mm -hmm. They're required to report uh, injury data, and they didn't want it reported electronically. Um, so they rolled back that regulation, which prevents uh, both the agencies as well as uh, watchdog groups and worker activists to understand and know the risks in various industries, how bad they are if they're not reporting um, timely and accurately the uh, injury rates in their industries and workplaces. So you uh, uh, would put this big lag of time of years, potentially, of finding out all that data, and by the time it all comes out and gets examined, everything has moved on to a completely different uh, scenario in the workplace. Sure, and information is key in this uh, field because you have to identify what is a ha workplace hazard. 
And before you identify it, you have to understand what kind of injury rates uh, they're having or death rates they're having in a particular workplace and performing a particular job. And without that information, you can't identify the hazards and you can't uh, remedy them. That feels and work, like... And, that feels and workers like a, remain at risk. Yeah, that's completely yeah. hamstringing you. Absolutely, and it's done deliberately. Well, even in this anti-regulatory era, John, there is still a really complex web of federal, state, and local rules that are intended to protect workers from getting hurt at their workplaces. So why then are so many workers still at risk? What's happening to weaken worker safety laws? What's happening to them is that... As I said, regulations are being rolled back, and then enforcement is lacking. Um, OSHA, even before the Trump administration, under prior administrations, including the Obama administration, wasn't funded enough. It doesn't have enough inspectors to inspect the work sites that Americans work at. So there's, there's no incentive for or no fear by any employer that, A, they're going to be inspected, and B, even if they're inspected, the penalties are, are not significant enough to cause employers to change their conduct. They're, you know, for, for death at a workplace, the immediate penalty was a little over $5,000. That's not even enough to pay for a funeral. And, and, and keep in mind that that money doesn't go to the uh, surviving family. That goes to the U.S. Treasury. Well, you suggest that even though you spent more than 30 years as a, a union side lawyer, that even you uh, came to the awareness of the issues of workplace deaths and injuries, as you say, embarrassingly late. So given your background and career, John, how, how did this happen? It just wasn't something that was on my radar screen professionally. I don't do workers' compensation law. I don't and, and worker health and safety is, is not something that lawyers actively practice. It just isn't there. There's no scheme within OSHA for lawyers to represent workers um, or their families. So f even for me, who's involved in this industry, you know, involved with workers on a daily basis, this part of it just seemed to be in a separate box altogether, and it was embarrassing for me when I did find out finally how bad it was. And, and that's what caused me to write the book. I said to myself, if, if I don't understand what's going on, um, then most Americans probably don't either. And, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to raise the alarm and bring some proximity uh, to my readers of what kind of suffering is going on in the workplace for Americans both, you know, who get injured on the job and the surviving family members. Coming up, the conversation continues with Jonathan Carmel discussing his new book, Dying to Work, Death and Injury in the American Workplace. Thank you for listening, and please like iHub Radio on Facebook. I'm Charlie Dyer. Eavesdropping is welcome on the desert's best conversations with Charlie Dyer. We're talking about Jonathan Carmel's new book, Dying to Work, Death and Injury in the American Workplace talk a bit about the history of how we ended up with this just 
crazy maze of state and federal laws protecting workers from injury and death. How, how did the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, which I can kind of vaguely remember from uh, my history classes, how did that fundamentally change the relationship between workers and their employers? Well, that was at, at a time when there was very little of any regulations in the workplace. There were some regulations early on, uh, but they were all on a state level. We never got any federal regulation outside of the mining industry, no federal regulation for the general working uh, uh, population and other industries until 1970 when OSHA was created. Before that, it was all catch-as-you-can catch on a haphazard basis, state-by-state, city-by-city, and not very effective. Um, and the Triangle Fire at that moment kind of lit the fuse, if you will, and made people aware when 146 workers died in this preventable fire, um, that caused them then to, um, you know, rally around the cause and get politicians in Albany, New York at the time to uh, legislate for worker safety uh, in New York State, as well as it created commissions, workers' commissions within the state, but it was very limited to New York. But that caused progressives at the time to continue to push the envelope a bit. And um, But again, we never got comprehensive national health and safety legislation until 1970 when President Nixon signed uh, the OSHA Act. Well, as you said, 1970, Richard Nixon signs the Occupational Safety and Health Act, which we call OSHA. How steeply have worker deaths decreased since that inception? And, and can we credit OSHA with that, John? The number of deaths yearly that I talked about earlier uh, in our conversation, that has decreased significantly since 1970. Uh, worker advocates, unions, health and safety advocates, would credit OSHA with that. The anti-regulators would say no, OSHA had nothing to do with that or very little. And it's and they say that without any uh, empirical evidence to back it up. I mean, the numbers have fallen, and it's not a coincidence that they've fallen since uh, we started enforcing federal regulations and state OSHA uh, regulations as well. So it's my view and view of others like me is that there has to be more regulations. You can't really overregulate the workplace to make it safer. And the question I ask at the book, at the beginning of the book, is is one death too many? Is that something acceptable? Um, are 5,000 deaths a year uh, acceptable? And the answer to me is not if they're preventable. Not if they could have been prevented by some regulation, some training, some awareness of what a hazard is, and, 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 and an obligation on the employer to make sure that that hazard doesn't make their workers unsafe. Well, John, let's talk about some of the stories that you mentioned that you collected in Dying to Work. And uh, when OSHA cites a workplace such as Maine Tech, who's liable for mm -hmm. the electrocution of Paul King for serious violations, uh, what kind of fees do they pay? And how much of that actually goes to the injured or surviving family members? Why can't the injured party sue? 
OSHA doesn't allow the injured parties or the surviving family members to sue. They, they really have very little involvement at all in the uh, penalty process uh, when a company is cited. So in Paul King's case, when he was electrocuted on the top of uh, on, on the roof of a terminal at Logan Airport in Boston, he had no training as an electrician. He didn't have any of the protective equipment that would have prevented him from being elect- electrocuted, including very inexpensive thermal gloves. Um, and so Maine Tech, his employer, was cited uh, for violations of OSHA. And I think the penalty was around eight or $12,000. I think they eventually never paid. Uh, but I was just reading today some decisions from the OSHA commission, which reduced penalties for uh, a worker's death from $12,000 to $3,000. And this is money that is minuscule to most of these companies, yet they always challenge the penalties um, as well as the citations. And this money, again, never goes to the injured worker and it never goes to the family, it goes to the U.S. Treasury. There is no compensation system for the injured worker or the fam surviving family members through OSHA. The only compensation workers can get for their injuries is through the workers' compensation systems that are different across all 50 states. And workers aren't allowed to sue an employer directly for their personal injuries that occur at work. That's why that was the trade-off. You'll, you won't sue us, but we'll give you workers' compensation. That was a trade-off that was made at the turn of last century, at the beginning of the last century. Um, and that, has, that bargain uh, has been torn up. It's in tatters. It doesn't really help workers and their families get through these very difficult times. John, our uh, local economy here in the Coachella Valley is uh, driven very strongly by the hospitality industry. So how has the competition for hotel guests actually exacerbated the injury rate among hotel workers? And and what is the injury rate among hotel housekeepers right now? The injury rate for hotel housekeepers is high. I don't know the current numbers, but what happens is the hotel industry, as well as in many industries, speed, you know, how fast you can perform your job and mm-hmm. how few workers they can do it. You know, the more workers they need to perform a job, the more costly it is. So they make workers work faster. And when workers work faster, uh, more injuries occur. They're, and the hotel industry is no different than any other industry, including the poultry industry, where they're um, slaughtering chickens at really high speeds um, that cause really da- uh, dangerous conditions. But in the hotel industry, some of these housekeepers are required to clean up to 30 rooms a day. Now think of making your own king-size bed 30 times, lifting up the mattress, putting, you know, putting the new sheets on, cleaning the bathroom, vacuuming the floors, etc., etc., do that 30 times a day. They start their day, the hotel housekeepers, at the drinking fountain by the time clock with bottles of Tylenol just to start the day so they can get through their day. And when they have a break, they take more Tylenol, and often they don't even have a break. So these hotel housekeepers are at really high risk for injuries to their backs, to their shoulders, um, to their... 
any any part of their body. Uh, and one of the things I write in the book, and you know, I learned all these new safety tips, you know, where I can make their lives and jobs a little safer in a hotel. Don't leave your towels on the floor. Uh, pick them up, put them on the vanity, so they don't have to bend down hmm. yet again and pick up dirty and wet towels. Just a little tip. Yeah, that's a nice tip. Well, John, what can people listening right now do to pressure their representatives to act to protect workers? And why is scrutinizing the word accident to start? Accident, uh, that's one of the things that I think we should do, and I'm trying to, trying to convey in the book. We need to change the narrative, which is the dominant narrative that these injuries and deaths are caused by accidents. By dictionary definition, an accident is a sudden or unexpected event, something that's not in, 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 uh, inevitable. And we have to stop using the term accident because all of these uh, injuries and deaths that I describe and many more that I haven't written about are predictable and they're preventable and they're inevitable. Um, so they're not accidents. So we need to stop calling them that because that kind of that blames the worker that they did something wrong uh, that caused their injury or their death. And the other thing we need to do to put pressure on it, uh, on our politicians, is we have to do, we have to become aware of the risk. We have to become aware of the problem and the crisis that exists in the workplace. And again, uh, I wasn't aware I had, until I started peeling back the onion on this story. And um, I'm hoping through the book, people become, who read it, people become proximate. You know, in order to really become aware, you have to get close to it. And, they, and the closest that I can bring them is through the stories. And when I started writing, I, you know, I was inundated with statistics. And the book has a lot of them. But I felt that in order to really convey the urgency of this problem, I had to tell the stories of the workers. And, and people need to get angry and, 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 and become active in health and safety. And there are lots of ways to do that. And it's just something that we need to pay attention to. Jonathan Carmel is our guest today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. The book is Dying to Work, Death and Injury in the American Workplace. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to know what you think of Conversations. Write me an email to charlie.dyer at ihubradio.com. And be sure to like iHub Radio on Facebook and tell all your friends about the digital difference in the Coachella Valley. Thank you for listening. I'm Charlie Dyer. Charlie Dyer.